welcome to the Good Book Club podcast, where we make all our book club meetings and bonus events available for listeners to enjoy. This episode features a Lazy Learner event with Dr. John Knight Lundwell of the Utah Cultural Astronomy Project. His presentation tonight was titled, Cultural Astronomy of the Ancient Fremont, and we delved into the mysterious rock art of the Fremont people and its relationship to the sun and solstice. There is so much more meaning in this rock art when you understand how it relates to the sun and the seasons. Dr. Lundwell's research is expansive and fascinating, and we only scratched the surface of what there is to learn about the mysterious Fremont rock art. We'll definitely be having Dr. Lundwell back again for more exploration. We hope you enjoy learning more about this fascinating topic. This Lazy Learner episode was taped on Tuesday, April 11th at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Welcome, everybody, to The Good Book Club. It's Tuesday night, April 11th at 7 p.m. Mountain Time, and we are here for another wonderful Lazy Learner presentation. These are bonus uh, meetings that we have with our book club, not necessarily connected to a book, where we learn something new and we have an amazing guest on to talk to us. And tonight we are going to be discussing the cultural astronomy oops, of the ancient Fremont with the wonderful and amazing Dr. John Knight Lendwall. So we are so excited to have him here tonight. I'm going to read his bio very quickly and then we will get right into it. This is going to be an amazing topic tonight. So John Lundwall holds a doctorate in comparative myth and religious studies from Pacifica Graduate Institute in Santa Barbara, California, where he teaches as adjunct faculty. He has served on the editorial board for Cosmos and Logos Journal of Myth, Religion, and Folklore, and is a founding board member of the Utah Valley Astronomy Club, a 501c3 organization that partners with state and national parks to run their astronomy and related programs. He is also the project manager of the Utah Cultural Astronomy Project and teams with a group of researchers, archaeologists, rock art specialists, and photographers to record and protect Native American rock art sites in Utah. He is an author of several articles and his latest book, Mythos and Cosmos, Mind and Meaning in the Oral Age. We are thrilled to have John here. Welcome, John. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. All right. Well, I'm just going to jump right in. All right, you can see me, see my screen. Yeah, you need to go into presentation mode. There you go. All right. Here we are. All right, I'm just going to, uh, 45 minutes is uh, not a huge amount of time. So I'm going to go get right into um, what we do. Uh, just a real quick introduction to the Utah Cultural Astronomy Project. Uh, we our group of researchers here in Utah. My research partner is a registered archaeologist with the state of Utah, John McHugh. We work with the Utah Rock Art Research Association uh, with field guides and rock art specialists, surveyors, photographers. Um, and we, we just survey uh, rock art panels. We've uh, published in the American Indian Rock Art Journal, Archaeoastronomy and Ancient Te Technologies. That's an archaeoastronomy journal out of Europe. Uh, we give presentations to the Utah State Parks, um, and we uh, help 
state parks in Utah registered for international dark sky status. Uh, actually, Utah has more IDA international dark sky registrations than anywhere else in the world. Most people don't know that, but Southern Utah is a dark sky mecca, at least it, it currently is. Um, so not only do we do uh, professional publications, but we also appear in pop culture publications. Uh, this is a two-page spread, a major article that was published in Ancient Origins. That's, uh, you know, that, that's the Graham Hancock uh, ancient aliens crowd, as well as archaeology. But we find that when we publish in there, we get 10,000 people reading our stuff instead of 10. <laughs> and so uh, we, we uh, you know, we do YouTube podcasts and, and pop culture presentations as well. Uh, we, pre we presented at Salt Lake Fan X, Comic-Con, uh, et cetera. All right, archaeoastronomy and rock art uh, really began in the 1970s uh, in a place called Chaco Canyon, New Mexico. And here's a picture of the canyon I took a few days before summer solstice a few years back. There's this gorgeous butte. It's called Fajada Butte. And uh, it lights up. It's the first thing that lights up in the canyon during the summer months. Uh, and so there it is. And it just so happens that built on top of this butte is a, I mean, I've got a picture right here. Are these three stones leaning against this uh, rock face. And underneath those three stones are a couple petroglyphs of spirals. And it was in 1978, I think, uh, a woman named Anna Sofer was hiking the butte and she looked underneath the stones just when a solar uh, interaction was happening at summer solstice. One of these light daggers through the cracks of these rocks goes right through the center of that spiral. And uh, she recognized it uh, for what it was. I mean, she, she thought that cannot be accidental. And interestingly enough, she she's not an archaeologist, she's not an anthropologist, she's an artist, and uh, it was uh, her eye, her eyes as an artist that uh, really understood what was going on there. So she uh, gathered a team of people, and they slowly began surveying Chaco Canyon, which is really the largest archaeological site in North America. Uh, and sure enough, uh, summer solstice, you get a sun dagger that goes through the center of that spiral. Uh, on the equinox, the sun daggers frame the spiral, one on each side. And um, uh, winter solstice, the, the uh, daggers equidistance between the center and the circumference. And so that has calendric purposes. But as we get into the rock art of Utah, I'm going to talk about how we believe the calendric purposes of the solar interaction on the rock art is secondary, if not tertiary. The primary thing they were doing was cosmicizing the image. They were bringing it to life by wetting it with the power of the sun and bringing the power of the sun into the tribe, in, 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 into the group. And so that was the primary purpose of this. Anyway, uh, these are some black and whites I took at Chaco Canyon. Uh, over the next 20 years, she and a team of scholars uh, began uh, surveying Chaco Canyon as huge pueblos. I mean, one of the pueblos there, Pueblo Benito, has 
800 to 1,000 rooms. Uh, it was the biggest building in North America until, you know, the very late 1800s when Chicago began building apartment buildings. So, uh, but they also discovered that windows, doors, and walls were astronomically aligned to both solar and lunar cycles. And so the entire site uh, is astronomically aligned. And um, that brings me to uh, 2017. I was right here in Clear Creek Canyon, uh, it's 30 minutes outside of Richfield. And I was actually down there. It's a park, Fremont Indian State Park. I was down there running a star party for them, uh, helping them register for international dark skies status. Uh, and I was uh, running star parties at night and during the day, hiking the trails with my son, looking at petroglyphs. Uh, to be honest, that, you know, that's only six years ago. I didn't know anything about the Fremont. I didn't know anything about their petroglyphs. Uh, my area of study is in ancient orality, cosmology, mythology, and religion, um, not in Native American indigenous peoples of, of Utah. Uh, but it so happens that, uh, just a quick introduction, we're gonna be talking about the Fremont culture. And the Fremont were an indigenous group living in Utah between well, 300 CE to 1300 CE, that, that early date 300 can actually be pushed back 200, 100, even, perhaps even in the BCEs. The problem is it's hard to define exactly what is Fremont the earlier we go back. Um, but basically, it, the Fremont inhabited all of present day Utah during that thousand year span but it's not a homogenous culture group. You've got different tribes, probably speaking different languages, uh, different motifs in the rock art in different areas of the state. However, there, see, there does seem to be a common iconography and ideological basis. In any case, we identify the Fremont culture complex by four identifying markers. They're right here on your screen. Top left, they do have unique rock art their bodies in their rock art are trapezoidal they have wide shoulders narrower hips and so you get these trapezoidal bodies if you see those in rock art in the american southwest invariably it's fremont and invariably you find that mostly in utah they inhabited parts of colorado nevada you know wyoming idaho um four corners region but uh primarily in utah they wore moccasins. The Puebloans wore sandals. So they wore moccasins made out of deer hide. They lived in pit houses. These structures here, uh, you know, about a three or four foot hole dug in the ground with posts and adobe lattice work around. And they produced a grayware pottery, a, a very plain kind of pottery. And so it's these um, material artifacts, remains that archaeologists look at and say, this is Fremont culture. We don't know what they called themselves. They're called the Fremont because one of the first excavations of this culture group was by the Fremont River, which was named after John C. Fremont, a European explorer who, who went through the area and the river was named after him. So the Fremont Indian is named after a European explorer. Um, so that's how they get that name. We have no idea what they called themselves. 
Well, while I was in Clear Creek Canyon, Fremont Interstate Park, I walked up to this petroglyph during the day. It's about four and a half feet long and two and a half feet tall. And of course, what you're looking at is a giant phallus. Um, but, you know, there's 3,600 rock art images in Clear Creek Canyon, just in the canyon itself. And most of them are anthropomorphs. There's a lot of, you know, birds, uh, bird feet, bear feet, uh, deer, elk. Um, and then again, a lot of anthropomorphs or humanoid figures. Many of them are probably deities. Uh, and so when I walked up to this panel, it uh, was different. And at, when I first walked up to it, I didn't see it as a phallus. I just saw a big geometric design. And, you know, it took me a few minutes looking at it to realize, oh, yeah, that, that definitely is a phallus. But I walked up to it just at the right moment because this was happening. Uh, hopefully you can see my mouse, but there is a triangle of light that moves up from the ground. It starts from the ground. It's, it's created by a little shelf of rock, which is right above image. And as the sun goes overhead this panel, that shelf of rock puts a shadow over the entire panel. And then as the sun moves westward, a little divot in that shelf causes a triangle uh, shaft of light to rise up from the ground up through the wheel motif. Um, and what happens is the tip of that of that sun shaft, there's four cupules, actually three cupules that they've pecked into the stone. And then this right here is not a cupule. I'm going to go back. These are pecked in using a, a rock. And that's quite large. That's the size of, a I don't know, maybe a $50 a dollar or a silver dollar. Um, well, I'll tell you exactly how large it is. It's one. 0.3 inches in diameter. Um, there's these couple cupules here. And that right there is a hole. It's not a cupule. And when I first looked at it, I thought it was just a, net, a rock had fallen out of the rock face and it wasn't, uh, wasn't part of the design. But as I watched the triangle of light move up, the tip of it at summer solstice touches this cupule, the right one, comes up, touches the middle one, and then ends at this drilled hole. And so uh, when I saw that, I looked, and sure enough, this hole up here is drilled with a bone or a stick. It's, it's, it's not natural. It's man-made. Uh, and so they, they carved these four cupules or holes through that wheel motif. And this triangle of light goes up through it at, through the month of summer solstice. And that happens for about an hour during the day. And so had I been there an hour earlier, the entire panel would have been in shadow. An hour later, the entire panel would have been in sunlight. I wouldn't have seen a thing. I just happened to walk up right when this triangle of light was moving up through the center. And, you know, all my, all my sirens started going off because I thought, well, that could be a solar interaction. It sure looks convincing to me. So uh, when I got back, I actually went to the BYU library. The BYU archaeology department is the one who excavated this canyon. And so I read their reports just to see if they had recorded anything. And no one had recorded anything about any solar interactions with any of the rock art. And so I called my friend John McHugh. 
uh, who's an archaeologist in Utah specializing in the Southwest. And I said, hey, come down to this park and watch this with me. And he said he would. So we went down and next thing you know, we started the Utah Cultural Astronomy Project. Well, it took me a couple of years to figure everything that was going on with this panel, uh, mostly because, you know, I had a learning curve of how to run time-lapse photography equipment. <laughs> and then I'd go down there and it would be cloudy and that, that, that wasn't helpful. So uh, it, it took me a while to, uh, to get everything recorded, but you can see here, there's actually an anatomically correct phallus up here. It's ejaculating. You got two phallic men standing on top of these row of 37 counting dots, an upside down corn tassel. And so there's all these elements. It's a fertility motif. And it turns out that it uses the sunlight during the entire agricultural cycle from equinox to summer solstice back to fall equinox, spring equinox to summer solstice back to fall equinox. This triangle of light actually swings back and forth on this panel and uh, it catches. Uh, there's a cupule here, so halfway between equinox and solstice, the tip of the shaft touches this left cupule. There's actually a cupule right here, and on equinox, the shaft is all the way over to the left and comes up and it goes through laterally. So I would show you time-lapse, but I'm going to show you several other pieces. One of the things that was uh, curious to us is this drilled hole. Why are these packed and this one drilled? And it took us a few months for me to think, well, maybe they stuck something in that drill hole. Uh, and so, uh, you know, if you find drilled holes in these uh, petroglyphs, let me just say, don't stick things in them. We, we use special materials to stick them, to stick them in. We, we try not to degrade any of the rock surface, but I put a, a stick in there to see what would happen with the shadow of the stick through the year, thinking that might be also a calendar implement. But as I did it, I realized as I was sitting there watching it all day, the, if you put a stick in there, the first thing that lights up on the rock face is the tip of the stick, because that's sticking out from the rock face. And that that's when it hit me um they're probably not using that as a shadow stick at all rather they're putting a prayer stick in it and the tip of the stick lights up first and if you put a prayer feather a prayer bead at the top of the, the tip of that stick and it illuminates while the rest of the panel begins doing its thing with these sun shaft going through it you have now just cosmicized that feather and bead if you take that feather and bead and you put it in your ritual paraphernalia, your costume, your drum, whatever you're using, you now take possession of the power of the sun. Uh, and so here's another hole, by the way. The, th this panel has several drilled holes on it. And so we realized that actually during ritual days, there it, it would have been fully decorated. There would have been prayer feathers, beads, turkey feathers, eagle feathers, uh, colors, it, it would have been decorated uh, while the sun was doing the, its thing on, on the panel. All right, this is Five Finger Ridge. I'm, I'm just going to shoot through this so that we can get 
to some more of the rock art alignments, but this is the largest excavation of Fremont that has ever been done. It's in uh, Clear Creek Canyon. It had about 100 structures on it, but many of them were not being dwelt in, and many of them were storage structures. The, the peak population of this site was between 70 and 100 people. Of course, they're semi-nomadic, so we don't exactly know how it looked. There could have been groups that lived here full-time and other groups that came and went uh, as they would go and do their uh, annual pilgrimage as they hunted, gathered, and traded. Uh, there are several pieces found at this site that link it to many other sites around the American Southwest. So there's an active trade network that is going on. There's seashells from the Pacific coast found here. There's turquoise from Arizona, Nevada, and New Mexico found here. And so it's not just some, you know, group of people that are detached from everyone else. There, there are uh, trade routes, and which means ideas are being traded as well. And so anyway, um, one of the first things we did in Clear Creek Canyon uh, the canyon runs east-west. It's about three miles long, uh, which means that there's a north side of the canyon and a south side of the canyon. And as we went through the archaeology, we realized that all the petroglyphs were carved on one side of the canyon, on the north side. And this really shocked us because there's plenty of rock face on the south side. So we spent a couple of days just driving and hiking the south side looking for any rock imagery on those panels and besides a cave shelter which has pictographs in it paintings a petroglyph is carved a pictograph is painted there are some pictographs on the south side but no petroglyphs nothing carved on the south side they're all on the north side and so that got us thinking why would they do that and so we began recording the azimuth reading of each panel we would stand in front of it and just take a sighting compass and mark what direction it faced the image itself and we discovered that in clear creek canyon about 99 percent of the rock art faces southwards this is not accidental this is a methodology and we realized that they're orienting all their rock art south not all of it but you know 99 percent of it um, and of course, we theorize then they're orienting it towards the sun in northern latitudes. The sun is declinated south. And so when the sunlight touches it, it breathes life into the image. Uh, the ethnography shows that they probably believe that the images of the rock art were living, breathing beings. And what better way to make something come alive than to align it with a sun shaft, for example. And of course, they, they could have done the same thing with the light of the full moon. There's probably lunar petroglyphs there that we don't know because we don't live there. And that, that would require years of study to, to work that out. But uh, bottom line is, uh, as we extended our research beyond Clear Creek Canyon, we, we continue to record the azimuth readings and, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of images in Utah, and we've only surveyed, you know, we've only looked at a couple thousand images. So this is a small sampling.
But so far, over 90% of the rock art we have looked at face southwards uh, throughout the state. So this is very promising that they are orienting much of their rock art uh, southwards towards the sun. It's a form of sun riding. Of course, that makes northward facing rock art really interesting to us. I have a whole video with some north facing rock art with the Big Dipper carved in it. So, so there you go. Um, before I move on, you know, for Fremont Indian State Park this is an international dark sky. This is a shot of the Milky Way I took there. Uh, it's a, a single exposure, non photoshopped. It's a 15, 16 second exposure. So it gathers more light than the eye can see, but uh, it, it, the skies down there are gorgeous. Here's another shot of a rock that we are surveying uh, with the Milky Way and the stars. So if you get a chance, uh, the skies in Southern Utah are spectacular. One last panel in Fremont Indian State Park. This is a big panel, heavily vandalized. Much of the rock art is heavily vandalized. Uh, but this also performs through the year. Uh, hopefully you can see my mouse, but you have this big 12 ring spiral with a square sheet, a spiral coming out of its back. Summer solstice, there's this little guy with two feathers pointing to the right there. The sun shadow line it moves down this rock face as the sun moves from east to west. And that sun shadow line goes right between his feathers, touches the edge of the spiral and bisects the spiral coming out of the sheep. That's not accidental. Uh, and it, during equinox, it, it does the same, but it splits these two spirals. Whoops, I didn't mean to click that. Uh, at winter solstice, you got to be standing right at the panel because as soon as the sun breaches the horizon, this column of light appears as if someone flipped a light switch. And uh, the sun shadow line is bracketing the right side of that spiral and separates the spiral and the horn. So they're using this sun shadow line as their template to create the size, position, and proportion of those rock art images on the rock face. And then they watch how that sun shadow line changes through the year because the angle of the sun changes through the year. And, and they are creating these images on the rock face to catch that sun shadow line at significant moments of the year. I will show uh, examples of that coming up. All right. Um, we're moving uh, miles away from Clear Creek Canyon. This is in the Uinta Basin, Northeast Utah by Dinosaur National Monument, Vernal. And uh, we were invited up there by a couple of rock art specialists who said, hey, we've got a couple really interesting sites that we want you to, to look at. So a couple of years ago, John McHugh and I went up there with our equipment. And sure enough, we were blown away with the sites that are up there, especially this guy right here. He is unique to the Uinta Basin. He has this unique headdress these two oar-like shapes. We call him the oar-headed figure because these protrusions coming out of his uh, bucket cap uh, look like oars to us. And he has this inverted bucket cap. Um, and so we call him the oar-headed figure. This, this 
guy right here is a pictograph painted. He's about three feet tall, painted on top of older petroglyphs. And some of these petroglyphs are pre-Fremont. In fact, there's some really faded ones. They probably go into the BCEs, which means this rock face had been used for centuries and the Fremont acquired it and painted over it. But there are some really interesting things about this guy. One, he has this fringe staff that's an extension of his arm and it's curved. This fringe staff is quite a common motif in rock art. It's a rain staff um, used in rain rituals, as, amongst other things. But we had never seen a, a, a rain staff that was really the arm of the individual curved like that. And we thought that was unusual. And of course, if you look here, his left leg is short and stubby, and then his right leg is three or four times the length of his left leg. We thought that was unusual. Anyway, some, you know, but rock art is by nature unusual. We just looked at that. But here is a three minute time lapse of summer solstice, how the sun interacts on this rock face. Nope. All right. There's no sound, so I'm just going to talk over it. But you have to be there at 6 a.m. Uh, this is a wide shot where I'm, I'm getting the entire. On the other side to the right off image is another side to this gulch. And uh, there's a little V-shaped wedge in it that the sunlight spills through. And it, it creates this, uh, as it comes down, this little dip in in the sunlight and as that moves down as the sun rises the sunlight perfectly fills the headdress of this figure boom right there and uh and so we thought that was significant because that that that's that's pretty unequivocal but as it goes down it wraps his curved staff and that's why the staff is curved and when that happened, we realized, no, nope, this is a sun marker. They're using this sun shadow line uh, as the template to paint this figure. We have a headdress alignment and a staff alignment. And then if you wait another 20 minutes, he stands over this lump of shadow. And that's why one leg is three, four times as long as the other. And so here's a, a close up. Uh, my... Uh, my white balance is off because my camera's in, in the dark and the sunlight comes in. So next time I go there, I have to fix that uh, because it gets really bright. But here comes the sunlight. And I'm just going to fast forward it a little bit. Uh, this is a 10 to 1 ratio. So it's 10 times quicker in this video than in real life. But you can see that that sunlight is literally filling his headdress. Now, it took us a little while, but it turns out this guy is a headhunter. And then we realized what's happening here is the sun is taking his head. And so the image is being cosmicized uh, by the, the power of the sun at summer solstice right there, uh, taking, taking uh, the power of his head. So here we have at summer solstice, the sunlight filling his headdress perfectly. 
then wrapping that curved staff, and then he stands on the shadow line. And so again, this is another example of the sun shadow line uh, being used as the template to place the size proportion placement of that pictograph. Now, we actually photographed this site for 30 days before the summer solstice. That gives us 60 days of data, 30 days before the solstice. That data is the same as 30 days after the solstice. And then, of course, we also photographed it at equinoxes, winter solstice, cross-quarter days. So basically through the year, this alignment only happens at the summer solstice. In fact, seven days of the year is all that that happens. Uh, four days before the solstice, that alignment does not occur. The light is shifted way to the left. So that is a very tight alignment. And that does tell us that this is... Uh, this is an alignment. They've, they've painted that figure to catch that moment of sunlight in that time of year. Well, that got us really excited. So we asked our field guys, take us to any site that has this headdress figure, this oar-headed figure. So uh, we went to this next site, which is a really unusual rock feature. It's a giant sandstone boulder that has fractured the bottom quarter here is fractured and then fallen over. I'm, I've got a picture of the piece that's fallen over right here in front, uh, which means you can stand underneath that rock. Well, here's here's the and not only is it fractured and fallen over, but the, the boulder itself is split in two. So you can stand behind it and look through the crevice. Um, but also you can stand underneath that spur of rock and it juts out to a dip in the opposing horizon right there. And just so happens underneath this spur of rock is our oar-headed figure. There he is. Now he's different. He's a different stylized, but there are his oars. His eyes are shown there. And his bucket is really just indicated by two parallel dots over his eyes. And interestingly enough, this is a petroglyph that is carved over older pictographs. That's the same culture that pecked the pic, uh, petroglyphs on that previous uh, rock panel. So they're reusing the site. The site has been used for centuries, probably as a solar observation site. Uh, and they've pecked their oar-headed figure right here. And so we looked at summer solstice uh, at the sun shadow line. But of course, that's not what this site is. This is a horizon viewing shrine. And so let me show you, I've got a time-lapse camera under the rock spur. And uh, if you sit there and watch the sun, I'm gonna fast forward it. Yes, it got cloudy as I was there, but it's still the sun comes down from the zenith and it actually descends into the west following the left side of the rock spur. It just hugs it if you're standing right under that. So that's a really interesting phenomenon to watch. You, you can see the time lapse as that is happening. But what that means is, is the summer solstice sunset is gonna come right down and set in the notch right underneath this rock spur, right in front of where that oar-headed figure is placed. And so in the previous panel, that was a solar interaction on the rock face. 
on this panel, you're actually looking at the horizon. And there is summer solstice sunset in that notch with a nice solar flash. Uh, and of course, uh, there's a still shot of it. It's really quite spectacular. And so they were using this as a solar observation shrine for centuries. Again, pre-Fremont uh, was using the site because of the unusual geology. Um, there's the sunset from behind the, the crack. And uh, interestingly enough, there is a sun shadow line on that figure. It, it bisects his face and that uh, shadow doesn't move during that entire phenomenon. And so generally, you, just because of the angle of the sunlight and of that rock spur, you get this block of shadow that stays there for a couple hours and uh, barely budges. And so um, while that's not unequivocal, that, that was interesting to us. But, but the horizon viewing part of that is an unequivocal solar viewing shrine. All right, my time is running up. I'm going to give you one more, uh, one more uh, figure, and sure enough, here we have. We found this guy, and he is the oar-headed figure, but his oars are pointing straight down. And when we first looked at him, we thought, yeah, that that might just be ear bobs. That might not be the oar-headed figure. But about fifty feet away from him, you have this sun warrior. And there's the oar-headed figure who's touching him. Um, the sun warrior is holding this. That's actually a scalp. It looks like a mushroom, but it's a, it's a head. Uh, and this is a headhunter figure. Um, and very often the oar-headed figure has those two oars sticking up, but he also has a hole in his bucket. And there it is indicated in right there. And so... But he had this really large tri-spiral on his chest. And uh, we thought that was interesting. And sure enough, we just discovered this on accident. One of our group members, Tina, watched, watched it happen and started shouting to everyone. And by the time I got all my camera equipment there, it was all over. So I had to go the next day. And then we've been filming it for a couple of years. But uh, we're going to watch how this works with a video with some music, because you know, why not? There it is, high up on the rock face. Has that unique, here's a close-up of that tri-spiral in his chest. There's his headdress with that fissure, see Peipu in, in, his, in his headdress. Again, this is a 10 to one frame rate. That's the summer solstice shaft. Again, happens seven days of the year. And you can just watch how the sun works. The shaft goes right up and it touches right where the inner line meets the circumference, which is on purpose. And the tip of that sun dagger bends and fills in the center of the spiral. Boom. And then the tip of that follows the inner line and then ascends the to follow the circumference. 
just real quick. That, by the way, is three sites of about five that has that ore-headed figure that has solar interactions. Clearly, that's a solar deity that the Fremont were using, and they were capturing uh, the sunlight uh, on those panels. So why do that? Um, again, we don't believe they're using that as a calendar. Uh, they didn't have the same conception uh, of a calendar that we have. To them, time and place are very important, of course. Um, but what they're really doing is bringing down the power, in this case, of the summer solstice sun into the image itself. So they have these uh, a series of summer solstice rituals that the sun priest will do. And of course, you know, there's no riding with the Fremont, so we don't know exactly what they were doing. We research this by reading the ethnography of the later Puebloan tribes, the Hopi, the Zuni, the Tewa, uh, you know, we read the ethnography of the Navajo and the Apache because there's influence of Athabascans in, in the vernal area as well. And so we, we see what their sun priests have done. And then we look at the rock art and the solar interactions and sort of make analogical hypotheses that uh, this was being done here. It's, it's a pretty good hypothesis to make. Um, and so we know that they're bringing down the power of the sun into the image, which in turn is bringing it into their ritual, which in turn is bringing it into their agricultural cycle, their biological cycle, their ritual initiation, tribal initiation cycle. Uh, it's, it's bringing the power of the cosmos down in, into their ritual. So that's the primary purpose of why they're doing that. Now, of course, in the American Southwest, these high desert uh, valleys where they're growing maize, um, and it, uh, you know, actually in in the in the vernal area, the, they did irrigate. They they dug irrigation canals in many of their fields, but in, in many of the places, they just dry garden. They dig a deep hole and plant the maize with some, um, you know, other other things, animal guts or whatever, and and then they let it grow with no wiring whatsoever. And so at the summer solstice becomes a very important time to pre, uh, start performing your rain rituals, uh, which they did. And so, you know, that rain stick is there on purpose um, from the heat of the summer solstice on late June, July, August. They're performing their rain rituals to bring the rain to get the crop to finish. And so uh that by the way is why he's a headhunter because headhunting was associated with rain making and rain bringing i'm not going to get into that um so the primary purpose then of these uh solar interactions on the rock art is to cosmicize the rock image to bring the image to life to bring the power of the cosmos into the tribe and to cosmicize the ritual uh, so that's the primary purpose. Uh, the secondary purpose is, sure enough, that happens at summer solstice, which they're tracking. So it is a, a, a clendric, um, it does have a clendric use. Um, that is, uh, that's my 50 minutes. So
let's let's just open that. That's all I've. I, I could do more, but I'm just showing the solar interactions of some of these panels, how they work, uh, and and so let's open it up to Q and A. Yeah, that was wonderful, John. I think we're going to have to have you back on because I can tell that you barely scratched scratch the surface. Okay, that's a petroglyph <laughs> pun. Barely scratched the surface of what we were doing. So um, can you see everybody's hands raised, John? If you can, I'll just let you field the questions. Yeah, I, I see them raised. Do I okay, click on perfect, them? Perfect, perfect. Uh, no, just call on them. Just I, in order. Just like I think Landon's right. first. So yeah, just go ahead. And... I'll, I'll just I'll just start at the top of my screen. Right. Uh, Tom Gleason. Perfect. Well, mine's quick. I'm just wondering, uh, are these, are the petroglyphs and everything they, they drew on the walls, was it all about trying to interact with the sun? Were they trying to... Were they doing this with the light that they would see from the sun? And the other question is, how did they get up to some of these higher places? That's that's it. And Lannon's probably got more intelligent questions. Are, no, th those are great questions. There are tens of thousands of rock art images. We have found six panels that have solar interactions. So they're not... Uh, you know, so most of them do not have a solar interaction the way we have shown them that we know of. Now, here's the problem is we go out on the solstices and equinoxes because, you know, we, we have other jobs. <laughs> We're not living at these sites. The truth of the matter is their primary calendar was a lunar one, and they had rituals every month of the year tied to their agricultural cycle, which means there are probably solar interactions happening on these panels not on the solstices and equinoxes, we would never know that because we only bucket off portions of our time at those parts of the year because we know that we're going to find something based off of our research methodology. So um, still petroglyphs, tens of thousands of them. Some of them have solar interactions. Some of them do not. Some of them are related to the sun. Some of them are related to the moon. Many are not. Many are related to agriculture. Many are related to other religious concerns. Many of them are maps, uh, uh, recording of wet seasons, dry seasons. There's a whole host of data in, encoded in these images uh, that go well beyond what I've shown tonight. I've just shown what our group, the Utah Cultural Astronomy Project, focuses on, recording time-lapse uh, photography recording these sites so that people see that sure enough this has been happening in utah for one to two thousand years with this culture group uh did i answer your and oh how did they uh because i've been them. i've been to panels and i i go how did they get up there how uh, they... they used anti-gravity from the alien interdimensional sasquatch Oh, lives there. Okay. okay, that okay. Thank you. Uh, ladders and ropes, and sometimes you can see that there's actually a rock ledge. These people were about five feet tall on average, very short. You know, four feet ten, five feet tall, and they were rock climbers. And uh, so, you know, some of the climbing they did, I you know, I would never do it. Uh, but if there's a little rock ledge, generally they can they can climb it. 
Uh, but there has been some sites where it's sheer. There's no way that they climbed a rock ledge. So they had to use ropes or ladders. All right, uh, Landon. Yeah, uh, you you kind of went where I was where I was going, but we these uh, circular sun shields or sun uh, things that you were pointing out, we we see those everywhere when we go looking at this rock art. Does it does it always represent the sun? It, and, and you said it doesn't always have a sun uh, orientation or maybe it does and it's just not a solstice thing uh do do some of these symbols consistently mean the same thing or are used in the same way because we see a lot of them in you know multiple places like they're trying to communicate something yeah uh so look this is a sun shield you can tell it's a sun shield because it has solar rays coming out its uh circumference uh so that is a common motif there are all kinds of shields in the rock art so clearly this is a, uh, a warrior cast. Um, but some of the, you know, very often it's uh, solar motifs, but sometimes it's clan motifs. Uh, so no, it, it doesn't have to be the sun. Um, we've seen snapping turtle shields. We've seen owls. We've seen, you know, so those are clan beaver, bear. We've seen, so those are clan motifs. Sometimes uh, they're not on a shield, though. You'll just see those circles, you know, that kind of spiral circle. Yeah, can, lots of spirals. There In Fremont rock art, you're going to run into sheep in spirals or concentric circles all the time. And one of my pet theories, again, I can't prove it, is because there's thousands of panels of rock art and, and they're not going to align every panel with a sun alignment like we just watched. Uh, one of our ideas is rather than aligning the rock art to the sun, they initiate the rock face itself with a spiral. Uh, and so that's like sort of baptizing the canvas. And that's what empowers it uh, with the power of the sun or the moon or the cosmos. And then they do their rock art. So that would explain why there would be so many spirals in the rock art is it's a way to, uh, to sort of prepare the rock face for the sacred images that are going to be put on. Now, that's a, that's a theory, not proven. Very often, the spirals do represent the sun. But very often, it's uh, like cycles in the solar year you'll get three ring spirals four ring spirals five seven six eight thirteen twelve nine um and so they're using those numbers for a reason um and i can't tell you all the reasons uh, some of it's cosmology some of it's tribal some of it is it took me six months to do my trade route and now i'm back you know it, it it's impossible to decipher much of this uh you would you would have to be in the head of the people creating it so do you, do you think any of it's like scripture uh that they tell a story and the tribe goes back to it and tells the story of some you know some oh, mythological yes. story yes 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 some of it is that in fact um uh oh yeah there's definite panels where you 
it's the entire cosmology of the tribe that's going on there. So they're, they're going there telling a story of their ancestors, telling a story of the, the gods and the goddesses and uh, the, the story of the history of their people. So some of it is a sort of, you know, book of Genesis that, that gives the history of the people. Now, again, we don't, uh, a, a good example of that is the Rochester panel in uh, Emory County. Um, let's see. I can probably pull a picture of that up. Anyway. <laughs> I have Rochester right here. There is a panel of scripture. Oh, this yeah. is this We're is that still was saying the slideshow. Um, oh, oh, I gotta. Hmm. Do you see that? Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> well, we got to find that one. <laughs> so uh, this, too, has astronomical alignments. And um, where's this? Uh, this is in Emory County. In fact, let's see if I have any of those. So it's on this protrusion. You walk out. There's this big canyon and there's this little peninsula of rock and you walk down the spine of it and it's carved right out here. Um, and it actually has a, uh, there was a pillar of rock in front of it because you can see the nub of it, but it was broken off and you can actually find that pillar of rock down at the uh, bottom of the, uh, peninsula and so a study was done where they re-erected that rock and the shadow of that did fall on these lines uh equinox and, and solstices and so so it did have uh, uh solar interactions there's where the pillar broke off oh it's right here here's the nub and um what's and so, the nearest town to this um God, I, I, I don't know. It's out in the middle of nowhere. Isn't Emory the only town in Emory? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think Emory is the only town in Emory. Well, I'm trying to put my, I'm trying to get located. Um, I'm trying to, anyway. Uh, Can you find, are these on maps somewhere? Is there a. Is no, there, well, no. you can find this just by looking up the Rochester panel it, because it's well known and it's on the Emory uh, things to see in the one town okay. in Emory. Um, <laughs> uh, so how about a field trip? We, Seriously. Anytime you want to do a field trip, I'd, I'd, I'd be happy to go with you. Um, the uh, Because there's so much vandalism happening. The rock art community has stopped sharing sites and they've asked everyone 
to stop sharing sites on the um, to stop sharing sites. Period, uh, which is really frustrating for a researcher such as me because I look at things and I I need to know the location to go there, and unless I have an in with that particular group, I, it's very hard for me to get the location. So that's why I work with the Utah Rock Art Research Association. They generally help me find my way to, to the places I need to be. But when we publish papers, normally you're supposed to, in academic papers, give GPS coordinates, but we don't. You know, we, we provide a footnote saying uh, we no longer do this as part of the uh, rock art etiquette in the American Southwest uh, because of the vandalism. And so um, I guess that's my plug just to say, please don't, please don't touch, deface, shoot at rock art uh, anywhere at any time uh, because it, it, it really is, it's breathtaking how bad some of these panels have gotten. Um, in fact, uh, during COVID, uh, you know, the, the state parks are 90% funded, by the way, with visitors, only 10% funded through taxpayers. So they have to pay 90% of their budgets by people who visit the park. And during COVID, they were afraid they were going to be shut down. But they were busier than they've ever been during COVID because mm -hmm. people came from outside of the state with nothing to do. And so they visited Utah State Parks and there was a swath of, of vandalism and garbage that followed in their wake. Just ignorance, people not knowing, you know, they see older, older vandalism from decades ago and think, oh, I can carve my initials here. And so we got a whole new layer of of Sally Loves Joey uh, on our <laughs> rock art panels over COVID. Um, and so anyway, mm. uh, next uh, question, uh, Bruce. All right, actually, Luann is, is next up. Luann, sorry, Luann. Oh, thank you, Bruce. I, I don't care, but <laughs> um, okay. The, uh, you're talking about the change because of vandalism, but we think of the earth as changing all the time, you know, erosion and earthquakes, plate tectonics, upwish, et cetera. Um, just how surprising it is, is it that these particular places have stayed accurate with the uh, sun coming and coming to those spots? Excellent question. The first thing we do when we, well, First thing we do when we find a solar interacting uh, panel is we look at what's making the interaction. Ah, where's the sun? What's its angle? What rock face is casting the sun shadow line? Then we have to inspect it. Has it eroded? Has it broken? Is this the same as when it was a thousand years ago? Um, and actually, there's a couple panels we've gone to that we were, are certain, well, not certain, but we're highly confident we're solar interacting, but uh, the, the rock edge that did cast the shadow is broken. And so therefore, you know, we can't record anything because it no longer interacts. Um, and, uh, but on the panels we showed you, um, yeah, we, we look at that and uh, we look for vandalism, erosion, 
uh, if if you know, and 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 we determine if if it's significantly changed from when they were there. Um, so in, in the examples we gave, uh, those those have been happening for centuries. There's a couple of them, like that. Uh, the last one I showed with the music. There's a nice fracture running down the slit that casts that that sunlight on that panel which tells us that in another century or two, that rock piece is going to fall out and that solar interaction will disappear. Um, so, but yeah, that's an excellent question. And uh, we have to look, look at that uh, to see if, if, in fact, there's one site. Uh, I don't hear, I got to stop share. Look at my, uh, just hold on. I'm going to show you a panel, maybe, if I have it, the eyeglass site. Yeah. I'd, I don't know. We've got one panel where. where uh, there is a solar interaction on the petroglyphs and they actually pecked the rock ledge that casts the shadow to make that solar interaction happen. Uh, so you can see the peck marks and they've actually contoured the rock face to cause the sun shadow line to interact the way that it does. So that's one example where they actually transformed the, the shadow casting face to make the solar interaction happening happen. So that tells us, you know, we're not looking in vain. If they're actually modifying the rock face to make the solar interaction, then they're using this as a methodology. So uh, in the other examples you saw tonight, that's just all from the natural uh, rock face. All right, uh, Bruce. Yeah, I just got a, a couple questions. Like when you took the time lapse photography, how long do you have people out there? Do you have to position cameras in a very specific spot each time? And then are they monitored over the days or hours? What? How does that work to get the photography? Um, I've been lucky in that I've only lost one entire camera setup. <laughs> so you just leave them out there and like I, 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 so like a couple of years ago, I was at this site. Can you see uh, my screen now? This uh, yeah. uh, horizon viewing. Um, this guy right here. I had my time-lapse camera set up underneath this rock spur to film the sun set and then i was at a different location filming the sunlight on a rock face and uh when i got back to this location i saw four wheel four wheeler treads riding up to this site and i my heart sunk because i knew someone had come um to look at it and sure enough all my camera gear was gone i did yeah i didn't i didn't mind the camera gear so much 
I lost three days of videography on my on my memory card in the camera. It was it was an entire summer solstice trip that they took. And that's what really made me angry. Um, so actually, ever since that, I, I'm really reticent leaving my my gear in a, in a spot. A lot of these places are are hard to get to or are on private land. This is on private land, so no one should be there. But especially in the Vernal area, there's people that drive around looking for anything. So, um, you know, that's you could try try putting on the equipment what is an Apple Air Tag and see if you can track it down later. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I've thought about that as well. Yeah. Now, what um, kind of camera equipment do you, do you use for these photographs? Uh, I generally use a Brino um, time-lapse camera. It's a low-resolution camera, so it's not nice, crisp, tight uh, uh, photography. But, uh, you know, a Brino camera runs off four AA batteries, can run in any temperature, and uh, I, it, it can run for days on the four AA batteries. And so I can set it out there for a day and not have to worry about it losing power. Uh, and so, and then I get a, you know, it's a, a, a 1080p by 720p video, uh, AVI file. And um, I use that, but I also use GoPros. I have an Astro modified Canon RP that I also use, but, you know, I never leave that. Um, the equipment can get expensive. So these Brino cameras are about four or 500 bucks for the camera, the housing and the tripod. And so if I, if I lose a $500 camera, then ouch, but that's better than losing a $3,000 camera. So, um, uh, but yeah, that's, that's what we use. Are you always, guys, yeah. Are you guys camping out there for days? Oh man. I mean, I, I imagine there's not a Marriott down the street. Well, I'm kind of getting old and tired of camping, but let me let me show you a site that I camped in that actually was the game changer in our research. If I can find it. Um those photographs are beautiful, a lot of those that you take and, and your videos that you do too are just fantastic. Thank you. Um, ah. Yeah, I got a, where is my sheep shelter shot that I can share with everyone? It's uh, like a tongue twister right there. My sheep shelter shot that I can share with everyone. <laughs> Easy now. Here we are. <laughs> All right, so I want to share my screen. Wow. Share screen. Where's my sheep shelter? Share. Okay. Oh, man. This is, this is a cave shelter at Fremont Indian State Park. It actually is covered in steel bars. I had to Photoshop those out. And no, I'll never do that again because that was hours of my life. I'll never get back. But um, you know, sadly, again, they have to close it up. Be, otherwise, it would be vandalized. Uh, 
but it has these petroglyphs on the ceiling. Uh, I slept in there for two nights. Um, and when I slept in there, I discovered something. And that is this wedge of sky that you see from inside. So there's the opposing bluff, the cave ceiling, and you get a about a 20 degree swath of sky. And that just so happens to be the ecliptic. That's where the sun, moon, and planets move across the sky. So you literally can sit in that cave shelter and watch that band of sky, the movement of the sun, moon, and planets from within this cave. And that is amazing. And, you know, the, the only way to know that is actually to sit there and, and watch it. And so not only that is the way the cave is oriented, sunlight, oh, this is a winter solstice sunrise and only penetrates the cave a couple of weeks out of the year. So it's a winter solstice viewing shrine as well as the Southern sky viewing shrine. Um, and so I don't know, why did I bring that up? There was a question. <laughs> Were you camping out there? Oh yeah, I was camping. So I was camping in here. Um, you know, they they let, let me sleep in there overnight. So, uh, so yeah, there are sites where I go to, I camp overnight. It's kind of, uh, you kind of have to do that because um, I am generally at these sites before dawn. So I got to be there at about 4.30 a.m. I mean, in the summer, dawn's at 6 a.m. Uh, mm -hmm. So I got to be set up by then. And, it's, you know, if it takes me... 45 minutes to an hour and a half to get there, then I'm committed. I just go there that night, set up, take night shots and stay up through the night, listen to the coyotes. Hopefully they don't eat me. And then I take photos in the morning uh, for the sunrise shots. So yeah, that does happen. Is that I-70 right there looking at those two roads? It is I-70. Wow. Yep. That is unreal. Yeah. Those of that that have passed through there wow. that's how that's how they discovered five finger ridge by the way yeah. 1984 they were building i-70 and they were bulldozing the village hill and kept running into archaeology so they stopped and uh the archaeologists came down did it like a 60 or 90 day fast excavation and then they bulldozed the hill so most of the fremont village is actually underneath i-70 Wow. This, and that this would never, and John, that would never happen today. They would, oh, never, no, 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 no. That created five fingers. They took yeah. four, right? They took yeah. four and left one. Yes. That's how, well, that's consistent with what, what happened in the country. Yes. Wow. But that's an unreal. That, that created such an uproar that, uh, yeah, the rules have all changed. That would never happen again. Oh. All yeah. right. Who are we with next? Douglas Maine. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to add to Landon's question about the spiral figures. Um, they're found in lots of different cultures. Like I saw them in Ireland at the New Grange and uh, in, at, in Peru, the Andean Cross. So have you, it, is it common for like at, in the Fremont culture, is it common in other cultures where the sun interacts with the, uh, the spiral, or is it just more generally like some other symbolism for the spiral? Worldwide phenomenon. Uh, so, you know, the oldest surviving passage tomb is in Ireland. Uh, that's uh, 
Karen T. Loft Crew Ireland. Uh, it has a equinox alignment. The sunrise or sunset, I can't remember. I think it's the sunrise goes right down the entry passage into the back of the tomb. And if you walk down that passage tomb, it is filled with petroglyphs on either side. And, you know, it looks just like Fremont rock art. There's spirals, and there's dots and there's counting dots. I mean, I, 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 you walk down and I'm like, wow, that just looks like I'm in the American Southwest. But you can find similar patterns throughout Europe in the rock art, in Africa in the rock art, Australia in the rock art. So, uh, you know, we can, we can either theorize that everyone uh, was, uh, was uh, you, you know, dispersing after Noah's flood, or we can theorize that uh, the oral mind uh, has a set of templates that they analogize uh, with nature in their rock art. And that is reproduced the world over uh, with cultures that produce the rock art. So yes, the, the spirals, the concentric circles, the anthropomorphic figures. I mean, there's variations in different cultures, but also a, an incredible amount of homogeneity. Good question. Uh, iPhone Jackie Matthews. Yes. Is that me? Yes. Just, I'm, I'm very serious. I, I would just die and go to heaven to have a field trip with you. Um, I just like to throw that out there for people. Um, but I, I just would love to see it face to face and, and hear you explain it. Uh, talk to Rebecca and, and Landon, maybe that, maybe they can, uh, drum yeah. something up. Yeah. That's uh, so like, I'm throwing that out and then, and then, let those guys run with it, but I'd sure be interested. Can, can you ATV into this stuff? Fremont Indian State Park is the, actually the largest ATV park in the country. It yeah, we've, we've, miles. we've been yeah. there. Yeah, we've ridden into that. But what it about has, like Embry and stuff? Uh, yes, some of it you can ATV into. Uh, some of it, I mean, actually a lot of the sites we look at are not that far from a dirt road. So we just drive our trucks there and, yeah. and then hike our camera gear 10 minutes from the dirt road. Uh, you know, sometimes it's actually not that easy. And there's a couple sites I've been to that I'm like, I'm not doing that again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, New Mexico has a lot of those. <laughs> <laughs> so... It's, uh, you know, but a, a lot of the, the sites you saw tonight are fairly easily accessible. Um, so, uh, Talia, good evening. I, I'm not getting sound. You're muted. Hello? Right. Tell you, I, can you I, I can hear you. Oh, no, you're muted. Unmute. Oh, there right. you go. There Hi. we go. Ah. <laughs> Good evening. I, uh, my, my microphone needs a spanking. Um, <laughs> so you sort of touched on my question here a couple of minutes ago with uh, somebody else's um, 
I think it was Douglas's. Anyways, um, the, you and I have had these kind of conversations uh, a few times before. And as I'm watching this, I'm thinking about the this use of the equinox and the solstices um, around the world uh, between cultures that are disparate. There, there's no communications between them. We know that. Um, and we know there were no aliens jumping around the world. But I'm thinking about, uh, particularly as you were pointing out some of these solar alignments at the equinox, um, somebody just sent me a video they had taken at Edfu Temple at the, uh, the vernal equinox a couple of a week or two, a couple of weeks ago. And what I'm really wondering, and you, you did touch on this, by the way, congratulations, your photography is wonderful. Thanks, Dad. And uh, it always is. And I know you've just come back from Mexico, so you've had it, you've, and you've been around the world and looked at a lot of this. Um, what I'm wondering is, are we observing some type of a archetype of the collective unconscious in human depth psychology that we do this around the world. This is way too prevalent to have happened by coincidence. Yeah, this is, uh, so the way I would put that is it's deeply embedded in the human psyche. Cultures without writing have a, uh, their primary reference of meaning is what they observe in nature. And so they have a fantastic awareness of natural cycles, including solar lunar cycles, but it's not just that. When the sun rises at a specific point on the horizon, certain birds fly into the canyon, certain animals migrate into the canyon, certain winds show up during the season. This is when you uh, plant, this is when you harvest, this is when you germinate your seeds. They tie all this uh, to the rising, setting sun, moon, and stars. And so this is largely astrological thinking, which is oral thinking. When a certain star rises on the horizon and, and your seed blooms, oral peoples believe that rising star causes that seed to bloom. And so they connect the two, and suddenly they are linking heaven-earth relationships it, from, from the sky to the earth, from the earth to the sky. And again, this happens all throughout history. As far as we can tell, it's happening where there's agriculture and orality. This is how oral peoples operate. So these uh, alignments with the sun, with, with the moon, uh, that's what they're doing. They're cosmicizing their agricultural cycle. They're cosmicizing their cultural cycle. Uh, and they have a deep awareness of those cycles. And so they're bringing, you know, to us, a sacred text is a sacred text. To them, the sacred text was the sky. This is what brought divine powers to the earth. And so you're going to bring the numinous into your life, into your culture, into your village, into your city state by making these alignments. That is the sacred. And so, um, yeah. That oral peoples think cosmologically and literate peoples do not. We think historically. So for oral peoples, truth is cosmic fact. 
for literate peoples, truth is historic fact. And, and there's a huge difference. Uh, so when you read your Bible, the people who originated those stories, truth to them was cosmic fact. We are now reading it as historic fact. There's a huge chasm between, <laughs> between the, those epistemologies and a lot of confusion as a result. Good question. Thank yes, you. Bruce. I just had a quick observation. I'm wondering if you took the the doodlings of a bored kid, you know, making doodles on a paper and stuff across the world, if you wouldn't find similar kind of shapes and you're just drawing and things that might be kind of coded in us. The spiral is kind of a fascinating little, you know, continuous line going around itself. I'm sure stars and dots and, you know, I'm wondering how much that might be, just be encoded in our way that we see the world. In. I, I, yeah, again, I agree. It's a part of this archetype of the psyche that um, that's embedded in oral consciousness. Um, yeah, I, I agree. There's actually a book about cave art. This is Neolithic cave art. And there's like 40 repeated symbols across cultures, you know, spanning between 30,000 BCE and 10,000 BCE. Clearly, these cultures are not in contact with each other. And yet, the symbols keep reappearing over tens of thousands of years. And so there, it is something primal in, in our psyche that will keep uh, producing this and, 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 and relating and it. Phallic symbols on old cave art and phallic symbols on bathroom walls, you know, are <laughs> kind of a universal... Well, I, uh, the, the penis and vagina will never go away. Uh, but in, in, in rock art societies, this is how you demonstrate, this is how you illustrated the fertility cycle. You, you drew a phallus, you drew a vulva, uh, you know, and, and um, so, yeah, that, that, and the vulva and the phallus are generally drawn pretty much the same way in every culture. I mean, the vulva is often a triangle or a circle. Um, and, and the phallus is, you know, a stick. So um, it's really not hard to, to look at those and come up with basic shapes. Rebecca. Uh, Rebecca. Yeah, I just had a question. Landon and Tom and I have gone out looking at a lot of these things and there's one symbol, how would you describe it, Landon or Tom? It kind of looks like a power line. Do, can you describe it better, Landon or Tom? Yeah. We see it over and over, and we're Go just ahead, really Landon. curious. It looks like a. What? What? Which line are you talking about? It's a uh, Landon. Landon? You're, it's, you're it, it looks like a where a power line would connect. It's like a triangle. Landon, can you describe it? Landon, can you unmute and describe it? Yeah, the there one I'm thinking of is the ones we see down by the Paiute Trail that the power yeah. lines look, they've got like the headdress that looks just like uh, the headdress. So if you look at the power lines down right by Fremont State Park, they all have this sticking up uh, and it almost looks like a buffalo head and then it comes down. Um, but the power lines look very much like the like a transformer dryer that you see all the time. Yeah, it's almost it's like really they made the power line look like the... <laughs> 
the <laughs> the power the line power. is in the headdress or not not the power the power pole um the power pole, the the big high voltage still oh, yeah. like a transformer station kind of but yeah it they look looks... very much like the like the rock art headdress that you see with the big square head and the and the pointy uh oh. things we'll have to get the whiteboard out bruce no <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i'll send you a picture of what we mean but yeah it's we see that all over and we're like interesting of course our answer is always aliens right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, oh, that's crazy. Do we have any more questions for John? I know we probably have a million questions. I feel like we're just going to have to have you back, John, because this is absolutely fascinating. Um, how Field trip. People... Field, Field trip. trip. Yeah, we're definitely <laughs> going to plan something. How can people access um, your site or information about what you're doing? We'll include links, but is there anything you'd like to just say that you could tell us? I'll go here, here. Or... Uh, just uh, johnklundwall.com is my website. Okay. I haven't updated okay. it in a while because I've been very busy, but um, I did just get back from Chichen Itza. Uh, I went down there to film the uh, Equinox interaction. And of course, it was cloudy the day I was there. So I missed that. <laughs> Uh, but by the way, this happens to me a lot. Um, I, I, I plan a trip and, you know, I'm just um, <clears throat> these interactions, by the way, on these rock art panels generally don't happen like a single moment or a single day. They happen over days. The tightest interaction is seven days. Uh, but but some of them will happen over weeks. And it turns out you want that be for two reasons. One, it's cloudy every other day. And so if, if you had an interaction that lasted one day and it was cloudy, oh, well, see you next year. Right. So you don't want that Two, their primary calendar is a lunar one. And so when the solar interaction starts happening on the rock face what these cultures tend to do is say okay on the next new moon on the next full moon we're going to perform our ritual and so they're integrating the lunar and solar calendars in that way but the next new or full moon might be a week away and so you you know so you you need lead up time uh for that to happen and so so these interactions therefore generally take several days which is good for me uh, because if I plan a trip and I look at the weather, if I have a couple cloudy days and a couple sunny days, I'll say, okay, I'm still going to go. Uh, but it's Utah. And very often I go out and it's supposed to be mostly sunny and, and I end up having clouds or the horizon full of clouds. And, and, and there you go. I'm, I'm left just uh, photographing rock art without the solar interaction. Are there um, any events coming up that are in the North American region that we could <laughs> attend together or try well, to Utah? Uh, um, yeah. I mean, good grief. There's uh, any events, uh, any events as in. So Interactions or, you know, where you have the, the petroglyphs, the panels, Anything else? I mean, I don't know. We're, well, we're this, going this summer, this summer solstice, I'm sure we'll be at a site filming. Um, but there's a couple panels right here in Fremont Indian State Park that you could watch. Um, I am, you know, I just released a video of that fertility shrine in the Uinta Basin. 
and I am working on a video for Fremont Indian State Park. They take so much of my time and I don't get paid for them. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a labor of love, but eventually that'll be released and maybe the park will even use it in their museum. Uh, and so then you can see how, how these work. Otherwise, uh, we could go down in May or June sometime on a field trip and, and watch them, watch them happen. Well, I, I'll put a plug in. I'll put a plug in just for the Fremont uh, Visitor Center there by I-70. If anybody's never been there. It's I had fantastic. never been there since last, uh, when was it, Landon, two years ago. Uh, yeah, we've all true. driven by there, going to Green River, took it for granted. Five fingers what? Wait, one finger? <laughs> and this happened? When? In our lifetime? <laughs> yeah. They took... They took the mountain away yeah. to build the road. No, it's a it's an unbelievable uh, realization. What happened there? Um, everything that was taken away, and what's yeah. left there is still fascinating. All the panels and everything, but this stuff is right here. I just have to put the plug in. I, oh, I'm plug uh, away. Uh, <laughs> Go, I think we'll Jack. try to plan something. We'll do it. We'll we'll Please. connect oh. and talk. I think that would it's be awesome. amazing. It's awesome, John. Thank you. Yeah, and like, it's been I'm, absolutely like I, amazing. I'm, I'm you just you just caught me, man. I I <laughs> would just die and go to heaven to be taught by you, John. Yeah, <laughs> this has been absolutely amazing. We've tapped into incredible resource here at Book Club, and we're going to use you again, John, because this is this is you right bet. up our alley. Our whole mission statement is just learning and exploring everything so this is absolutely fascinating mm. and connecting i think to the wider world which just this does you know you feel like this sense of awe and wonder and this incredible spirituality when you look at all these things and it's just amazing so mm. all right i guess we will officially conclude dang it i don't want to i want to keep talking but uh let's put our final slides up really quick if we have though just as we end and then I, I will definitely go on record saying we're going to figure out a field trip. So we want to remind everybody that um, you can go to the Good Book Club podcast for audio um, of all of these kind of episodes like our one tonight. So if you want to listen to other Lazy Learners events that we've had there on podcast, and you can also find us on YouTube, you have to search the Good Book Club for post-Mormons, and then it'll come right up in all of our regular book club episodes and these bonus events, these Lazy Learner events are on that. That too. So um, if you would like to oh, remind everybody, of course, Sunday is a regular book club meeting, and that's going to be Recovering Agency with Luna Lindsay Corbden. And Luna is going to be with us for the entire book club. She just told me today she's coming to the whole thing. So mm -hmm. woo! <laughs> I know it's going to be really, really exciting. So this is going to be amazing. And if anybody wants more information on the book club, you can find us on Facebook or Instagram, or you can send me an email at thegoodbookclubatmail.com and get connected because we really just love to learn. And we try to have a lot of interesting guests, like just connecting with John, you know, so randomly, such a random way that we connected, but we find these incredible people that, and we put them to work, right? <laughs> and we say, come to a presentation or take us on a field trip. So I think this is great. So thank you, everybody. We'll say goodbye for now from the Good Book Club. Thank you.